but also because it is a work that lives deeply in the world and speaks back to it. Um, and I think if our choral organizations will have a place in 50 years, it will be those organizations who have successfully been able to live in the world and speak back to it. So uh, I'm from Missoula, Montana, and um, I like my music background is I started playing the piano when I was in second grade, and actually um, I started playing the piano because I told my parents that I wanted to play um, the electric guitar because I nice. wanted to be in a rock band. <laughs> Um, and my parents very wisely told me that I had to play the piano first. And I don't think that they really had any concept of why that mattered. No one else in my family was musical. Um, but they just knew that that was the thing you're supposed to do. So they put me in piano lessons. I took piano lessons for a while. Um, and then um, really, I say like the thing that sort of captured me as a young musical person was um, musical theater. And I was really lucky to have a lot of like musical theater accompaniment experience early in high school, um, which made me, I know, so helpful. Like it's a weird thing, but um, that's how I learned how to sight read was just like playing for auditions and, you know, playing for my friends and things. So. That's very cool. Very cool. <clears throat> so um, how did you get into music as a profession? Like what made you become a music uh, musician? And was there anything that you maybe thought you were going to be that you didn't end up being yeah, oh my gosh, I feel like I had this really winding path. Um, I was a physics major in college, um, in the early college, yeah. And I wanted to be pre-med. I wanted to go to med school. Um, and Why med school? What? Why med school? Um, well, really, I think it's because I had a lot of shame about pursuing music as a profession. Um, I, yeah, I had just internalized this idea that uh, even to be a success, even to be a, a professional musician was not to be successful. Um, you have a day job and you do it on the side. Right, exactly. Um, and I wanted, um, I thought that I would be happy with like prestige and um, yeah. So I had all these like really toxic things about career that I had internalized. Um, and so that's why med school, like that's the reason it wasn't and and I sort of, you know, justified that to myself in roundabout ways, but that that's really why. Um, so, yeah, so I did two years of a physics degree, and at the end of it, I was so depressed. And, um, yeah, for the first time, I'm super, I love learning. I love being in class. I love, you know, um, that's what has drawn me to academia for so long. Um, and for the first time in my life, I was, like, dreading going to class. Like, it was, like, it would be hard to get out of bed just to yeah. go to class. Um, and I took a year off from college, which I recommend to a lot of people. That was really helpful for me. Um, and when I came back, I was a music major. Awesome. What did you study in your undergrad for music? Mm, so my 
I went to a liberal arts school and we had a relatively small music program. So my degree is technically interdisciplinary arts with an emphasis in music. Um, and what that really looked like was I took all of the choirs, I took voice lessons, I took our theory and history sequence, and and then I took, honestly, a lot of classes in sociology and gender studies. Awesome. That's so. really, really cool. Yeah. So now, I've introduced you as a core musician um, or a musician, but what do you consider yourself when you approach your work? Shoot. Shoot. <laughs> That's tough. Um, I mean, you can just consider yourself a musician, but I imagine that you consider yourself as more, given the work that you do, which we'll get into. Yeah. Um... So my, most of my training is in conducting, um, and also I'm, I will never be the type of conductor who is in a symphony hall conducting an orchestra. I, you know, I will never do Beethoven nine, which is what people think of when they think of conductors. Um, and, and, you know, I think, um, my work is about, um, I think a lot about storytelling in my work, especially working with queer young people. I think about what what are the stories that we did not get told as young people? What are the stories that we carried that we were told didn't exist? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think about um, telling stories. I think about um, learning history. Like in some ways I'm a historian. Um, uh, I also think about like curating, like curating experiences that help us learn about what it means to be human. Um, so those are some fancy words. I don't know. <laughs> that, that sounds lovely and juicy and, and delicious. And <laughs> the shows I've seen of yours, absolutely true. Oh, thank you. That's so nice. Um, so we'll back up just a little bit. Um, what made you want to teach specifically? Hmm. And so you found your way through getting through med school or not through music. <laughs> yeah. music. So like what has kept you going mm. music? Yeah. What has kept me going? Um, <laughs> th so there's parts of me that are deeply selfish um, and aren't we all, aren't we all right? <laughs> um, and surely like one thing that just keeps me going is just uh, the love of beauty. Like I think about like some of my earliest profound musical experiences. Um, I went to uh, ACDA Regional Festival when I was in high school in Seattle um, and sang for Andre Thomas. Ugh. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we sang, uh, oh, this is a spoiler for anyone who, from my church choir who listens to this, but um, we sang the Bible Ave Maria. I don't know if you know that piece. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and oh my gosh I think I, I used to tell the story this was like the first time I'd ever heard someone sing a low F like <laughs> it's like that experience when like your jaw drops yes. on the floor and you're like ah basses like <laughs> and um yeah so there are like experiences like that that just like make your hair stand up on your skin you know and give you goosebumps um that's something that keeps me going and then I think about um Another sort of story that I tell often, um, I grew up as a queer kid in Missoula, which for, in terms of like uh, places, rural places to grow up for queer kids was relatively good for me. Um, there was, there's always this sort of like ambient hum of homophobia, you know, um, and I had certainly some like intense experiences with, you know, slurs and being chased by trucks and, you know, Things like that, but certainly nothing horrific. Um, you might associate with Montana. 
Yeah, exactly. Some of the things that you would, that you would expect, right. Um, and also, um, singing in choir in high school um, empowered me to build advocates for myself. So I think about, like, for, for many of my peers, I was the first, and ex- with the exception of, like, the other queer kids in high school, like, the only queer people that they knew, they knew from choir. Um, and... It, the thing about young people is that um, often they're so willing and able to have their perspectives changed by um, experiencing new things. And so someone who might come to a choir class with like a a deeply homophobic mindset that they acquired from their family or from other circumstances, um, those people would sit next to me or my other like peers in choir and become our friends and hear us talk about things that we had experienced or um, even think about us when talking about queer issues. Like uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was like, you know, a big thing while I was in high school. And this was, you know, almost, a well, I guess half a decade before marriage equality. So that was a hot topic, controversial issue. (laughs) And so just like having sat next to me in choir, these people would uh, sort of think about my experiences when they thought about other issues. And so um, this that that experience of being able to build advocates for myself um, really pulled me toward education. Um, and and just like the choral experience, specific, specifically being a choir teacher. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so going based on that, <clears throat> I feel like that really sets up why you teach. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you think that informs how you teach? How do you like interact with your ensembles? Um, and how do you react differently to different ensembles. So obviously with the queer youth ensemble, you're gonna, you get to react a little more freely than you would say in a church ensemble, but how do you handle how you bring all of that into your teaching? Yeah. Especially in like the later years of college for me and, and you know, into grad school and still now, I think often about the role of consensus and the role of like democratic decision-making in the choral ensemble. Um, and I think years ago, I, I had this deeply wrong, um, and um, it took me a long time to sort of wrestle this out in my head, and in some ways I still do. Um, I deeply believe in um, consensus, consensus, consensus-based decision-making in the choral ensemble and um, democratic processes of um, making decisions, and I used to think that this even influenced artistic decisions, like what do people think about this crescendo or what do people think about taking a breath here? Mm -hmm. Um, And that, uh, that shaped my sort of rehearsal procedure early on. And then I went to grad school and um, I learned that I have skills. (laughs) I learned (laughs) that I have unique skills and unique training um, that uh, make me um, more, um, more qualified to make some of those decisions. And in fact, it's, it's valuable that the ensemble um, trusts me to make those kinds of decisions for them um, or on their behalf. And, you know, that's the thing that, that's my contribution to the ensemble. The way that consensus-based decision-making and democratic decision-making comes into the ensemble for me are, we can are, achieve consensus about what should it feel like when we're in the room together? And how do we get there? And um, what is the role of our performances in our community? Like, what 
what, how do we want people to feel when they come to our performances? Um, do, do we have like an advocacy role? Um, how, you know, how do we want our performances to be perceived by the community? So things like that um, are, are essential opportunities for consensus-based decision-making. And that can happen all throughout the rehearsal process. Um, so yeah, I, th I, th I think a lot about the role of consensus and the role of democracy, um, because I think, I mean, as a person growing up in the time that I have grown up in, I think often like what democracy in is has been cast into doubt. And I think that people, you know, there is a lot of uh, unclearness and just murkiness about what it means to live in democracy with one another. Um, and I think that we, we can and should model that. That's, you know, one essential function of the ensemble arts is to help us figure out how do we even engage with one another, you know, and how do we make decisions and how do we um, create things together? So how did you make that turnaround from <laughs> having a less democratic process? Like you said that grad school is what taught you really, that you have these skills to kind of make this atmosphere and make this an experience. How did you get from one to the other? Like what either um, <clears throat> about the process of grad school or getting out of grad school, like how did that happen for you? Yeah, so, so first of all, I, um, my, the choir director in my undergrad, who was like one of my fiercest champions um, and like a huge supporter of me, um, her rehearsal process is very different than mine. She's like uh, one of those brilliant conductors who um, is extremely demanding <laughs> in, in a rehearsal. Um, and like the type of person who would keep us hours late in a dress rehearsal to get, you know, get things exactly right. Um, and, um, what we expect of conductors at A type. <laughs> yes, exactly. The person who you expect to be conducting uh, Beethoven nine, like that, that conductor, when you say conductor, you think of my, um, professor in undergrad and I, I have incredible respect for her. Um, and so much of my, like, technical foundation in terms of vocal pedagogy, in terms of rehearsal procedure, in terms of um, programming, in terms of repertoire and preparation mm -hmm. comes from her. Um, and also, um, I that style is inauthentic for me. And so um, much of like the way, so I think of like a pendulum from, you know, like her style to the style that I, uh, wait, that's not the right analogy. I reacted very strongly to her style um, and perhaps tried to do something that was, you know, too far opposite of what she did. And so at perhaps the... Maybe from a lack of experience of having not run your own rehearsals. So you, you base it off a model of someone. That is, that's exactly what it is. And so, um, yeah, I tried to do the opposite of that. And um, early on in grad school, it did not work. <laughs> and I found that um, when I was conducting, uh, instead of sort of my idealistic, not idealistic, but instead of sort of my like romantic ideas of um, making decisions together, which is a romantic idea, um, but too time consuming and not ultimately what people sign up for when they sign up to sing in yeah. a choir, you know? Um, and so it took some trial and error. And, and then to hear from some of my faculty say, you know, you are the person with the expertise in the room to make artistic decisions, you know, 
you're, you have degrees in music, and you're the person who ought to be making those decisions. And what people want is to sing and to, to be told how to sing and um, to, to give of themselves in other ways, other more humanizing ways, because like the technical nitty gritty of music analysis is not what is not humanizing for most people, you know. Time there, just like please stop with these chords. I don't. Yes, exactly. Like I do not need to give everyone in my choir the Roman numeral analysis, <laughs> you know. Um, and so, so yeah, that was. Uh, and and there's a part of it for me that was um, like about self confidence, you know. Um, as a young conductor, um, I I did need to be told you have skills and you have strong intuition and you are capable of um, doing this job as it should exist. Um, and I was lucky to have faculty who, who told me that explicitly. So thanks to those people. So That's great. Yeah. Um, so how do you view, um, as you probably know, I'm a huge gesture nerd. Mm. Um, so do you feel like your musical philosophy is influences your gesture? Are there things that you do very specifically to represent the music um, to make it more approachable or make it accessible or bring people in? Like, is there anything that you can think of specifically that you do? Yeah. Um, so I come to conducting um, first as a singer and um, I want it, it wasn't until sort of later for me that I realized what it felt like to sing for a conductor who, um, whose gesture invited singing. Like, we've all sung for conductors, brilliant, brilliant conductors, who um, show everything in their gesture and show exactly what, what they want, which is an admirable goal. Um, and also, often, to use this word again, it can be dehumanizing to sing for a conductor um, who is so mechanical. Um, and... And sometimes it can be even like vocally damaging, you know, it can be challenging to sing vocally. Um, and yeah, so I think uh, one role of gesture is to invite healthy singing. Um, and, uh, and that starts with, you know, um, how, do we, uh, how do we prepare our bodies so that when singers mirror us, they uh, are welcomed into good technique, healthy technique. Um, and that's hard and it requires like endless hours in front of the mirror. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yep. And I'll, like, and like watching yourself in really critical ways, which is really hard. And, you know, you have to stare at your own face. It's the worst. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. And, and it also, it requires like in, when, it requires to sing for a lot of people, you know, like you have to sing for a lot of conductors until you learn what works for them and then how to transfer that to your own body. Um, so, yeah, I think the, uh, the role, one function of gesture is to invite healthy technique. I think another role of uh, gesture is to um, be emotive and to invite people um, into like the emotional experience of the song, which can be really challenging, especially as people who are socialized as men. Um, like we have, we are like socialized with two emotions. One is like neutral, like stoic, and the other is angry. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and so 
for people who are socialized as men to learn um, like sort of this spectrum of emotive experiences, like what does it look like to show melancholy and grief, but also what does it look like to show longing and, um, you know, urgency that's not angry. <laughs> um, those, those are challenging. And, and an, essential, an essential function of gesture is to invite singers into the emotional experience of a piece. Which is hard. It's a big task. It's very hard. And especially, uh, a lot of people feel as though they're already vulnerable because they're being asked to sing. Mm. So being asked to emote on top of something they're already uncomfortable with. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, <clears throat> moving more um, towards your role within any organizations that you work with, um, what role do you want to play in your ensemble? Like, what role do you play in their musical lives and in their lives? Um, and in this experience that they have agreed to join into? Mm. Or do you try to do? Obviously, you can't know everything that goes through their minds, but yeah. who are you on the podium, I guess? Yeah. I hope that... Um, I hope that people think of me as, like, a caregiver on the podium. Like, I hope that... Um, people experience me as like attentive to their needs um, on the podium. And, and I, I think um, that doesn't mean that like I'm the person who like welcomes like all of your questions and all of your insecurities like immediately, like that is not me on the podium. Um, I guess what I mean by that is I hope that um, people have the trust in me to know that I will like not leave them hanging, you know? Like we all know those those choral singers who are like, I don't I don't know the music or I can't sing it or I'm I'm messing it up and or it the section doesn't sound good and I hate it. Um and yeah, I hope that people my biggest hope for every ensemble that I'm in is that people trust me to to get them there. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a hard, that's a hard thing. Um, I also, this is sort of a more recent thing. I've been thinking about like artistic leadership and what it means to um, create room for diversity of leadership. Mm -hmm. Because I do believe that um, artistic organizations uh, function best with one leader, um, with one leader sort of guiding the comprehensive, you know, artistic experience. Um, and also, I don't believe that singular people in leadership is ever an effective form of leadership. You know, there's these two things that are deeply in tension for me. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think often about how to empower people to um, bring their skills and to bring their their interests in service of a shared mission. Um, and yeah, I don't quite know, you know, it's sort of like rehearsal technique. This is like a trial and error for me in my career right now. Um, and and someone listening to this podcast will, will tell me that I'm wrong about this, but I do feel like that there are 
there are a few models for what this looks like. You know, um, the traditional coil model, which is great, and I, I am you know deeply in love with, um, sort of doesn't allow for um, a diversity of leadership. It often depends, especially at the university level, it often depends on the artistic vision of one person who's the faculty member, and that's great, and that has produced a lot of you know brilliant choral art, um, and also. I have dreams of something different in addition to that model. So I don't know if that was a really romantic answer, but <laughs> how I feel. Do you have any ideas for what you would like to see that dream consist of? Maybe not specifics, but just like in general, obviously decentralizing sort of this, <laughs> this hardcore A-type, you know, artistic leader who's like the champion of the organization, the champion of the people kind of thing. Yeah. Do, you have, do you have any idea what that would look like? I don't know. I think that um, one thing that I've been working on in the past few years is um, uh, including different types of performance art and choral performances. So um, especially right now, I think is the opportune moment for people to be really digging in and learning um, digital multimedia, um, like really um, experimenting with um, video production and, you know, um, experimental audio production, um, these kinds of sort of, uh, not taboo things, but um, things that we really don't, I think we don't talk enough about in the choral arts. Um, sort of expanding the choral world to not think of itself as this very small bubble, but including other arts as well and valuing right. them equally, I guess. Right. And these, you know, these are the kinds of things that, um, where I really welcome artistic collaboration because, um, yeah, they're, this is outside of my training. You know, like I do some video editing and I've put a lot of work into learning video editing, but there are people who are, are video editors, you know? Like, um, and um, yeah, so, so elements of um, digital multimedia, which I think will still be relevant after COVID is done, but also like other performance art, like them always... Um, incorporates some elements of spoken original spoken word or original narration um some some movement pieces and also just like visual um like visual aesthetic pieces these are like sort of essential parts of our productions um and will continue to be so i think yeah making room to um include artistic disciplines outside of uh choral music um which is yeah uh, requires, you know, collaboration. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so I want to take a little bit of a digression from necessarily not uh, from things that are rehearsal based or or choral based. Um, but what is your, some of your favorite music? Oh shoot, <laughs> shoot. Doesn't have to be choral either. Mm. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, Drew. Exactly. Here's some more options. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So um, I'm really lucky as a musician to um, have been trained in you know how music creates mood, and so I uh, listen to very different kinds of music based on the mood that I'm in. Um, in sort of in, I really enjoy listening to. Um, early music when I'm feeling like cerebral. So like when I'm like trying to get into my intense think mode, I will always go to Bach. Um, and I, there was, there was a period of time when I listened to, um, uh, 
Glenn Gould's uh, yeah second recording of the Goldberg Variations like every single day, um, and that's like my thing that like gets my brain gears going, you know. Um, I always think Bach to me slivers, mm, uh, yeah, especially the Goldberg Variations. Uh, so it almost <laughs> I also listen to this when I'm like trying to think, and I always think of of, of, of his slithering as like my brain waves like just working. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's totally it for me too. Yeah. Um, I also listen, like when I'm like in my feels, I listen to like sad indie folk music, like Noah and the Whale. Oh, I love Noah and the Whale so much. Um, so good. Um, uh, I also listen to like, this is probably my like problematic fave. Like I have this deep crush on like Tyler, the creator. Um, and yeah, and I think Tyler, the creator, is, like, my first. Tyler, the, Tyler, the creator, and, like, Kendrick Lamar um, are, like, my, like, first introductions to rap, and I really appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah, just, like, uh, that's what I feel, that's what I listen to when I'm feeling emotive. Like, when I'm, like, feeling poetic, I, like, listen to, like, Kendrick Lamar, Tyler, the creator, or, ugh, my daddy, Frank Ocean, oh, my God. <laughs> I had like, sorry, maybe this is too much for this podcast, but like Frank Ocean was like a, like a sexual awakening for me. You know, blonde, like, yeah. oh my God, girl, just like, ooh. Um, yeah, so truly thank you to Frank Ocean for all of us. Um, yeah, um, I recently, like in the past year, discovered Esperanza Spaulding, who is like brilliant. And I'm, I'm probably so late to the game on her, but like anyway, um, brilliant and important. Let's see. What else do I listen to? Yeah, I guess that that is actually like a good summation. I listen to like early music and or rap and or sad indie folk music. So I guess those are the three genre. Then to expand it, what are some of your dream pieces for any ensembles you work with? And it, again, it can be an arrangement of something. Shit, that's tough. Oh my gosh, that is really tough. My dream pieces. Yeah, like, I want to start doing um, stage works. I definitely want to do some stage works. Um, I want to do Hildegard's Ordo Virtutum. Um, and, yeah, I want to do that as a stage work. I don't know if I ever will because I'm. it's, like, it's beyond me now, but, um, but someday, and, you know, with years of preparation, um, I would love to do that. Um, some, like, more reasonable things that I might actually conduct. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I actually don't know. I need to think more about my dream pieces. Yeah. <laughs> well, then um, I'll expand it out a little bit more then. So in thinking of dream pieces, obviously there's this Hildegard piece, which is, mm. it, it's years away, right, for like yeah. most people. Mm. Um, but do you, do you feel like you have a hard time reconciling um, the expectations of a community chorus or community ensemble versus a professional ensemble. Mm. I, I feel like community choruses get a bad rap where it's just like, oh, it's going to be terrible, but at least they're going to have fun. Mm. Um, do you think about that when you're programming? Um, and if so, how do you how do you tailor that for your singers? How do you make it either approachable or make um, things that are not considered highbrow uh, part of a higher brow or more cerebral type narrative? Yeah. In my last semester of grad school, um, I was really, really lucky to um, 
basically in preparation for my final my final exams of my master's degree, it, my professor was like, what do you want to study? Like, what have you not studied yet? Um, and I got a very inadequate amount of time on the Bach passions um, in like the core literature sequence. And so I was like, I want to study the Bach passions and then I want to study all the other passions. So we did uh, Bach and then Schutz, who I was late to the game. And, you know, I, I deeply regret not getting more time to, to spend with Schutz. Um, and... Yeah, these are the kinds of works that um, anybody who like really is in the choral game for choral things, they're like, oh yeah, I want to sing St. Matthew. I want to sing Bach St. John. Um, and yeah, the reality is that um, unless uh, a conductor is really discerning about bringing in ringers and about deciding, you know, um, some cuts to make, which tough to make cuts with Bach, but like we will never perform. Um, and, and, and those would be better left for a professional ensemble, um, with more resources. And that is sad to me. Um, especially because so much of our training as conductors is importantly studying works that we might never perform. Um, and yeah, it, it is, it is sad to me that um, so many of these works that I am deeply in love with, like like Bach St. John or Bach St. Matthew or the Schutz Passions, I will never perform. Um, and, I, and I believe that these works have a place in our study of repertoire. You know, we must, we must study Bach. Um, however, I will say, I do think that um, there has been a movement, like maybe in the past decade or even the past four or five years, of composers... Uh, young composers, young living composers in America, mostly, um, writing really brilliant, accessible works for choir. Um, I think about works like um, Seven Last Words of the Unarmed, really accessible to contemporary ensembles, you know, even academic, even academic or community ensembles. Um, and I hope that... Um, composers continue to write works for the community ensemble that are um, well-crafted and compelling and uh, rewarding to sing that are also accessible because I don't, yeah, so many of the, you know, uh, monumental works in our field are inaccessible to contemporary community choirs. And that's sad, um, but yeah, but I hope that people continue to write more things for community ensembles. I don't know if that answered your question. No, I think it did. I think it did. <laughs> um, so other than repertoire, uh, which is a huge challenge in and of itself, uh, what other challenges do you feel like there are facing community ensembles, or that you face particularly in community ensembles? It doesn't necessarily have to be in the ensemble itself. I mean, obviously, no one tells you about a board of directors or ordering music or process <laughs> or, like, where you're going to sing. No one tells you that in school, obviously. But, like, what, what do you think, other than rep, community choirs are challenged by? Yeah. Um, this is going to sound existential and too sad. That's right up my alley. I know. Here we go. It's 2020. <laughs> Let's get sad. But... Um, 
I have been thinking about outside of academia where there will probably always be a place for music you know what is the role of music in our communities um, what what will keep us sustained um, and I think this is for me this is even you know more um, existential isn't the right word again but I'll say it anyway existential than just like audience retention like who's coming who's paying to come to our shows but it's like um, what people my generation and younger are looking for arts that respond directly to the world. Like we think about the great artists of our generation and younger. And I think about like Beyonce, like the world lit up for lemonade and not because it, I mean, not only because it was aesthetically stunning, but also because it is a work that lives deeply in the world and speaks back to it. Um, and I think if our choral organizations will have a place in 50 years, it will be those organizations who have successfully been able to live in the world and speak back to it. Um, and and I, I think that's a real struggle for this moment. Um, I, I feel like I've spoken about this a lot in the past months, but um, my generation has grown up steeped in a world in crisis. You know, like we have all of these profound existential crises from um, the exposure of white supremacy and the murder of black and brown people and indigenous people all over the world, but also climate change and the erosion of trust in democratic systems and, 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 and. Um, and people in my generation and, and younger are uh, looking to engage in arts practices that speak truth about our reality and seek to transform it. Um, and, and I think this is a real challenge facing arts organizations um, because the people in the generations before me, um, not to say that the 20th century was a prosperous time, but certainly um, the latter 20th century was um, not marked by crisis in the way that the 21st century has been. And so, um, yeah, th there is a, a shift in the function of arts organizations that some... Um, have struggled to navigate. And I think um, we must figure out how to do that, to be arts organizations that are in the world. And, and I don't mean that we only sing about um, sad things, <laughs> because I don't think that's, you know, that's not the point. But, but the point is, how do we... Um, build ourselves and build capacity to uh, deal with <laughs> this like increasingly uh, dire world. So it, in, some, in some cases, it does mean like education and advocacy. In some cases, it means really speaking honestly about um, um, like how to care for one another and how we can be in community with another. And then finally, I'll say um, there are, there are, uh, there's an important place for like levity and lightness that, that arts organizations must serve. Um, I'm working on this concert for Trans Day of Resilience with a number of other gala courses. And um, one thing that we talked about doing early on was like, how do we engage with this idea of levity and lightness and humor so that it's not all heavy? And what we did is we um, reached out to two trans stand-up comics and oh, so like awesome. in the concert we're having just like two um stand-up comedy sets which i'm so excited about um and so 
Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think about art that lives in and speaks back to the world and also making place for levity and lightness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have two final questions. Mm. Uh, and they are mostly for me, mm. uh, but I'm very curious to hear uh, mm. your responses. Uh, so the first one is, um, what does your ensemble mean to you? Mm. Um, I'll talk about them. Um, them is the thing that gives me hope for the future. I think, um, I worked as a, well, I did a lot of, um, community organizing while I was in Seattle. Um, and a lot of the organizing groups that I was in, we talked about the 70, 30 principle, which says that like when you're talking about like, um, systems of oppression, um, the way to organize sustainably is to spend 70% of your time building alternatives to systems that do harm and 30% of your time breaking down systems that are awful. Um, and so for me, them is my 70%. You know, we spend, we spend time learning how to care for one another because as queer people, we never learned that. Um, we spend time learning our history. We spend time learning about our voices and about our bodies um, and really practicing um, how to give and receive care. Um, and so I think about like them as my place and, and others' place for learning the skills of care that we will need in 10 and 15 years. Um, because if we don't start practicing things like what do we do when we when we make a mistake and hurt someone like if we don't start practicing those skills now we we will never learn them um and so yeah i think about i think about that um and 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 more recently especially as we get ready for this t-door concert we've been spending time like dreaming about the world um and them is writing a piece collaboratively right now for which the singers wrote the text and then i worked with some of the um some of the like more skilled musicians to write the music um, and so I think about that as like an essential piece of like them is my place for us to build dreams of the future. Like, yeah, if young people have, um, are to inherit this world and are inheriting this world, we, we must spend time with one another imagining how we want to be. So yeah, I think them is like my dream for the future. And so lastly, um, what advice do you have for someone, uh, particularly because you do work with, granted it is a youth ensemble, but it's mm. like upper, True. the upper grades of youth into early adulthood. Mm. Um, what would you, what advice would you have for someone who feels like they, their, their window for music learning has passed, mm. where they've reached adulthood and it's like, well, I didn't start when I was young. What would you say to them in terms of either joining a music ensemble, seeking out music instruction, anything like that? Um, this is so interesting. And I, I really, when you ask that question, I'm going to speak to myself, I guess, because like, here I am. But, but um, this, is, this is an analogy from another field. So my, one, my favorite author right now is um, a black author named N.K. Jemisin. Um, and she's a, sci a black science fiction writer. And she uh, is just really brilliant. And she actually, one brilliant thing about her is she won the Hugo Award three years in a row for this trilogy that she released. And it, that was like, I don't know, 
I would venture to say that's the first time that ever happened. Maybe not, but um, but for three years in a row, so she had this trilogy. She released the book one year after the another, and she won the Hugo Award for every single one of them, and they're stunning. Um, and her writing style is like unlike anything I have ever read before. Um, and she, I didn't know this until I started like really following her closely on Twitter, and now I read like everything that she ever tweets, but. Um, she didn't publish her first book until she was 30. Um, and then it took her, you know, another five or six years until she was winning all these awards. And now, um, a decade later, she just this year won a MacArthur Genius Grant. And, um, and it's really interesting to hear her talk on Twitter about like, yeah, I had no idea what I was doing until (laughs) my thirties. Um, and yeah. It's like a mantra for our generation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, please give yourself time. It goes back to what I was saying about crisis. Like, this generation is being demanded to grow up really quickly because the world is falling apart. Um, and and so many of the systems that our parents had set up for them um, to be able to, you know, build sustainable futures in their 20s um, are do not exist for us. Like, yeah, we've we have uh, grown up in the middle of, a number of deep economic recessions. And um, so, um, yeah, I would say that also one one gift of being a queer person is, this is advice that one of my like close friends and um, deep, deep role models gave to me early, or early in grad school. Um, one like gift of queer ris- wisdom is that our paths are not linear. They have never been linear. You know, we don't live in this binary of successful, unsuccessful, or, um, you know, etc. And so uh, one gift that we can give ourselves is the grace to follow our, our own paths um, and know that um, our time will come when our time comes. So, and yeah, to keep working, to keep working for goals, like set small goals and then do them and then celebrate yourself for having done them. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here, Nikki. It's been wonderful to hear all of these wonderful things that I, Mm. that I knew were in your brain from like the shows and the way that you read your ensembles, Uh, but it's truly, truly been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me in our second ever episode of From the Front. If you want to learn more about the Them Queer Youth Ensemble, you can visit themyouth.com. Dot org. That's T-H-E-M-Y-O-U-T-H dot org. And if you'd like to learn any more about Nikki, our fabulous guest, their website is NikkiManlove.com. Last thing before I go, if you know any great adult music educators or community music leaders whose voices absolutely need to be heard, please send me an email at fromthefrontpod at gmail.com. Or you can drop me a DM on Instagram or Facebook. That's all for this week. Have a good weekend, y'all.